Welcome to episode 248 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Sue Ann Ramsey. She learned about the career field of preventative medicine when she joined the Army. And while she could have went into the military as officer, she didn't know about that path. But once she arrived at her first assignment, the captain she was working for helped her get a direct commission and switch from preventative medicine to environmental science officer. And her work led her to do work all over the world with a specific focus in Africa. And even though she left the military after 29 years of service, she is still working in preventative medicine and environmental science and she's working with africa today as the project manager tactical combat casualty care programmatic lead for women peace and security i really enjoyed talking to sue ann today and i'm excited to share her interview but before we get started i want to remind you that you can hear women of the military podcast on wreaths across america radio Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's episode. Excited to have Sue Ann here, another woman veteran ready to tell her story. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Amanda, for this great opportunity. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, as, uh, as you, know, uh, you know, many people will say that there's so many different reasons, but my biggest why is I really wanted to serve my country. I'm uh, from a family of veterans. Uh, my sister's uh, a veteran, my brother, my cousins. And in fact, um, just for a brief background, my parents are immigrants. Uh, they came from Thailand and uh, their families were serving in, in the Royal Thai Navy or the Royal Thai Army and even the Air Force. So, so basically a joint family. And knowing that they had served and also being the firstborn in uh, both my parents' you know, families, firstborn in the U.S., first generation, you know, I felt uh, that need and desire to serve my country, which is the United States of America. So that's the biggest why. There's a ton of other reasons why I, I joined, but that was, that's really the main reason. And what branch did you end up deciding to join with? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I actually tried to join the Navy, but my my background in exposure to the military was actually in high school. Uh, I enrolled in the U.S. Naval Sea Cadets. It's kind of like an ROTC program, but they're not affiliated with the high school, but it's during our high school years. So I actually was a sea cadet, a naval sea cadet for two years. And I was, you know, all for going into the Navy. And of course, it was right before going to college, and I thought, well, may, why not try to get a commission? I applied for a direct commission, but wasn't accepted. So I went to, to college without any military affiliation or obligation, if you will. And so by the time I graduated or just about to graduate college, I was reintroduced again to the military from the standpoint of, you know, hey, why don't my sister had joined? So she was like, why don't you join the army? I'm like, why would I want to do that? Part of me still had that desire again to serve my country. It's just that it didn't necessarily mean I had to join the military. And so she had talked to me and gave me some pointers about, you know, how the army was doing this and that. And I, at that time, had not had not really had any real concrete plans after college. So I said, well, why not? Let me go talk to this recruiter. And sure enough, you know, got the whole recruiting 
message and, and campaign and was signing up pretty much at that point. So that's kind of how I decided on the army was because my sister was in the army. My cousins weren't in the army, but they were all military. So there, there was a lot of influences of joining a service, but the Navy was definitely not my choice at that point. They had four years prior decided not to, you know, bring me on board. So I was like, it's okay. We'll, at least I'm serving. And so I signed up and joined the army. By the time I graduated college, I was already headed to basic training. And did you end up enlisting into the army? I did. I did. Uh, so, you know, funny story behind that, um, which everything happens for a reason. I firmly believe this. So my recruiter knew, knowing that I was a college graduate, I took the ASVAB and I was told, oh, you're going to get any job you want and you won't have to be a private. And I'm like, wow, that's a like great deal. And so I had no idea that I could be an officer and I was enlisted as an E4 and went to basic training, went to advanced individual training, which is for the Army's uh, military occupational specialty, MOS. And I signed up for what I wanted, which was actually interesting because I never knew this kind of job existed. It's a preventive medicine specialist. And that's basically your, your government version of public health public health officials, inspectors going out and, and making sure people don't get sick, right? And so part of me was like, I, it, it was meant to be because I actually was a pre-med student and part of my culture and, and family background was, you know, everyone needed to get into a high level profession like a doctor or a nurse or a, or a lawyer. And so that was my path, but I just wasn't into, I was into medical, but not into patient care. And so this was all for a reason. It brought me to my passion in the military, my expertise in the military, which is public health and preventive medicine, helping soldiers and, and service members all around stay safe and healthy. And so it was meant to be. I was not mad at my recruiter. I was like, you know, when I was brought on into the military with the, the lack of information of not becoming an officer, it was it was meant to be. So I was able to go through all my training, get to, you know, get through it, get to my first duty station. And that's when it was discovered that I was an enlisted soldier, but with a four-year you know, bachelor's degree in biology. And they're like, why are you not an officer? And next thing you know, I was putting in my, my packet and I received an, pretty much an immediate direct commission. So that's how I ended up both serving as enlisted with no break in service direct commissionee as a second lieutenant and driving from one my duty station to the officer basic course in in San Antonio I really literally pinned myself from an E4 to a second lieutenant as I was driving across country yeah that's kind of crazy and that that is like one thing that I've heard is like there's not enough information out there for people to understand because the military kind of speaks their own language and like once you're in it's you're surrounded by people who understand it and then they help you understand it and you get up to speed. But when you're talking to a recruiter, sometimes they don't say exactly like it worked out fine and you got to, you know, have a great experience and, and then you were able to become an officer. But it is interesting that he didn't say, Oh, you're about to, like the being um, a higher ranking, you just have to have 60 college mm -hmm. credits. So it's not right. like you have to be, it's not like you have to have a degree. You just have to have 60 college. Right. I think it's 60. Yeah. Yeah, so. I think so. There was some minimal requirement, but obviously I wasn't given all the information necessary to make that decision. And and I'm sure, you know, again, there was all there was a lot of reasons behind it. But at the same time, like I said, I'm I 
that path that took me to where I ended up with almost 30 years in the military. So I, I'm very proud and it was very rewarding to know that my experience is a very unique one. I'm so happy that I'm able to share it right now. Yeah. And I love that once you got to your first assignment, they were like, wait, you have your degree in biology? What? Wait, let's fix this and get you, you know, exactly. on track to being an officer. Exactly. And it, and it was one of those things that, again, happened for a very good reason in knowing that, you know, I had all this background and where could I be in my future in the military. And I knew right then and there I was going to stay in. I, I just didn't know what I was going to be. And so that was one of those things that as you're surrounded by the mentors and the leaders and even your colleagues, everyone helps you to figure that part out. You're not alone in doing that. And that's what I appreciate the most. Yeah, that sounds like a good experience. How quickly after you finished your, I say tech school, but AIT, that's what the Air Force calls it, tech school. How quickly after you got to your first base did you end up going to officer training? So it was very pretty rapid. I barely spent time at my first duty station uh, just because my schooling and my basic training took so long for me to complete. So by the time I'd been in the army over eight plus months with all the training, by the time I got to my first duty station. So I put in the packet immediately within that, that summer, I got there like early February, I put in my packet by that summer, I had already been selected by that summer. So we're talking about roughly four or five months that I was selected, but I couldn't go to the course yet till the following year. So you know, my bosses knew I'd be a second lieutenant when my bosses were like NCOs and they knew I was going to be senior to them at some point. So it was kind of a very interesting situation where, you know, for the remainder of my tour, which was roughly 10 months, I had to stick around at my duty station that, and that was just 10 months at the new assignment versus adding that with my schooling. And so I'd been in the army practically 11 days shy of two years is when I actually officially signed out of, you know, my, my enlistment term and then got a direct commission, which, like I said earlier, I didn't have a big service, which was great. Literally an E4 one minute and then second lieutenant another minute upon paperwork, you know, conversions and stuff. But uh, so 10 months, around 10 months before I actually headed out to OBC. Wow. That's really fast, especially military time. Like That's really fast. I didn't even know what to do. I mean, at that point it was like, uh, so just pin myself on, you know, as a second lieutenant, yep, <laughs> you're just <laughs> driving to, you know, your next, your, your schooling and you show up as a second lieutenant there's there at that point, you know, the expectation is you're, you're there to come do training. They don't know whether you know how to put your boots on or, or, you know, know how to even salute at that point because you're a direct commissionee. So there is no background training, but luckily I was prior service. So that was an experience in itself in, in going to this course where luckily three fourths of us were prior service. So there's a fourth of the class for officer basic, you know, was walking right off the streets into putting on a a pair of boots and and uniform and had no idea how to march and no idea how to salute. And three fourths of us, luckily in my class were prior service. So, you know, it was easy for us to walk right into officer basic and you know learn to be an officer which is really what they do there yeah you have that background knowledge and I think the air force has a similar thing and when 
I was a second lieutenant, there was captains walking around saluting us because they didn't understand the rank structure, but their captains, because they, based on like what job you were doing, uh, determined your rank. And so there were people who were like, you know, you'd think they would know because they're captains, but then you'd find out, no, they're, they're just brand new. They don't know. They're still learning the military. And so it was kind of funny to see that happen. And it was, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. Exactly. You come across so many different people that you're, you can be overwhelmed by just the fact that even though I was a new direct commissionee, it was still a new world because you're talking about the experience I went through with basic and AIT. I was amongst all a majority of them were straight out of high school. And so, you know, I had a little bit more, I would say maturity uh, because I was 21 when I joined the military versus 18. And so that was a huge, significant impact uh, with the experience that I had. And also then now, you know, transitioning into a, a an officer, there is another level of maturity there too, because you've got people who are coming off the streets and they may very well be adults or have been adults for a while. And now, because a lot of them for the medical, you know, you're talking about high technical pr professions that, you know, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or any other medical professional, it's not just coming off the street. It, what I mean by that is that they've been in the workforce for a while. And so learning the military is, is, is an interesting situation for them. You know, the, I should say interesting could be challenging for them because they've never put on a uniform or they don't know what those customs and courtesies are, which was helpful that our whole, you know, majority of our class was already experienced in that. For sure. Cause then you can help the other people along and help them to understand. Exactly. And then they can follow like what you guys are doing. They're like looking right. to, to you guys. Yeah. You stayed in the medical field and did you stay in preventative medicine? I did. I was just so absolutely lucky that my, the same specialty, the, the packet that I put in for direct commissioning, which you pretty much elect to go into the field you want to, because the ball is now in your court as a direct commissionee. And so I was fortunate that my boss, who was an environmental science officer, uh, she encouraged me again to put in this packet. I say more like, was voluntold to do it, you know, like you, you will put this packet in and I'm an E4 and my captain, O3 at this, you know, Army O3 says, put in your packet for direct commission and it's in the same field. So the commissioning was for was the preventive medicine arena or the umbrella of it is under is under the preventive medicine community and it was environmental science officer which manages those preventive medicine specialists so as an e4 my boss was an environmental science officer and i was putting in a packet to become one of her and so it just it, it was such a great you know again movement forward in that I ended up in the same field that I really wanted to be in, not knowing again where I wanted to land within a medical field, not being a clinician, but still helping others in the health field. And it, it just landed right in my laps. And so I put in for that, I got accepted, and I had been an environmental science officer from that point all the way till I retired. Cool. I love hearing that. And I love hearing how the military opened up a career field that you didn't know about. And mm -hmm. I feel like there's so much stuff you can do in the military and a lot of it, you know, mirrors on the civilian side, but sometimes in the civilian sector, it's hard to learn about what can you do? What can you do with a degree in biology? They probably told you, oh, these things, and they didn't ever talk about this aspect or, and you didn't know what questions to ask, but then the military right. was like, oh, you like science and medicine? Here's all these options. And then you were able to pick one that worked for you. Exactly. 
it just worked out really well. And so I then ended up as an environmental science officer for the majority of my career. I stayed in the same field, but as you advance, of course, you start to manage more of the other aspects of our military life. And that led me into working into the space of security cooperation, which is primarily working with foreign partners and building their capacities, particularly in medical I was managing numerous projects that basically helped, and I spent about eight plus years in Africa supporting those programs. And so a lot of that has a lot to do with my background in environmental science, but it also led to the opportunity to be able to work with foreign partners, particularly in Africa, helping them build their medical capacities and capability to include preventive medicine, which I was very thankful to have that opportunity to share once again, more from the health standpoint, not so much from, you know, like specifically how the army or the military does it, but more just to be able to collaborate and contribute to their ways of building their capacity and capability to protect their own forces, because we all want to stay healthy, especially on on deployments or missions or anything that the military asks you to do. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So well, let's back up a little bit. So you went to your training where you learned to be an officer. And then did you have additional officer training, like tech school? Not because they don't call it AIT. No, they call it, it's the advanced training uh, for post the officer basic. You get to go into your specialty field. And in my case, we had the uh, a course for preventive medicine. And so that's roughly... Uh, if I recollect correctly, it might have been about two months worth of training, which was consecutive to my officer basic. So I just went from officer basic and then I just stayed at that same location, which is in uh, Fort Sam Houston, Texas, where all medical now actually for all of the military is in San Antonio. And then I did my preventive medicine course there and then went to my first duty station as an officer. Okay. And where was your first assignment? Was Fort Bliss, Texas. Fort Plus, okay. Stayed in Texas. El Paso, yes. El Paso, Texas. And uh, that was my first assignment. Got to be able to lead uh, an environmental health uh, section, which primarily, again, focuses on ensuring the health of the soldiers at that base or at that installation and anything that supports the surrounding area. So Fort Bliss was pretty big. It had, you know, supporting areas that extended outside of Fort Bliss uh, that we would occasionally collaborate with to help make sure that the region had the services and protection they needed. That included like the inspections of food facilities, making sure that we also understood what the medical threats were in those areas, particularly mosquitoes, for example, or um, in, in the western part of Texas, a lot of a lot of the viruses that associated with rodents, for example, like hantavirus, those are very prominent in those areas. So, you know, we had a lot of things that involved monitoring and surveillance of those types of threats that our soldiers in in again in a garrison type of environment, we used our our services or, or provided those services to ensure that the health of the soldiers and families were protected on the installation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, you're like, Porpoise is kind of big. I'm like, it's huge. It's a it's huge, huge base. It's a, it's a large population, too, of family members. It's a lot of, right. of both uh, active duty, uh, even National Guard and, and reservists, as well as retirees. A lot of people actually, surprisingly, retire to El Paso, Texas. Yeah, it's huge, and there is such a big military community. I was stationed at Holloman, and we flew out of El Paso, oh, so okay. that's why. I'm like, yeah. no, it's it's really big. So how long were you stationed there before it was time to move to the next assignment? I actually was there for roughly close to almost three years. Uh, so surprisingly, the Army, you know, they do actually try to work with you. Uh, my husband was military at the time as well. So both of us were dual military. And he was actually getting uh, his elevated, his uh, classification into becoming a licensed practical nurse. So the school is about a year long. And it happened, the reason why I got Fort Bliss was because he was going to a year-long school at Fort Bliss. And the the medical center there was William Beaumont Army Medical Center. And he was having his, it's basically you go to school, then you get a year of, in, it's kind of like an internship. You know, you, you're there, you're, you're sent off to a hospital and you stay there for a year. And so I had asked for me to be assigned to Fort Bliss so that one, I could be there for at least a year and with an understanding that I would remain there if I needed to for an assignment. But luckily, the Army works in mysterious ways. And uh, and I think that it benefited us. Uh, one is both of us were in the medical field. So we had asked him when again, when he finished that one year, if he could stay there as his assignment. So the Army said yes. And we were able to stay together for the remainder of his tour and my tour, which roughly was around, in, in collective years, it was around three years. We moved together again. Again, another surprising thing with the military, you know, helping dual military husband, wife, you know, stay together, which I appreciate tremendously. And then moved to our next duty station, which was Fort Benning, uh, Georgia. So we moved all the way to the East Coast or the yeah. South, I should say. Yeah, and so dual military adds a harder layer. I think being both in the medical career field, that kind of helps because, you know, he, he can go to hospital and the medical field is a good field to be in if you're going to be in the military because there's clinics everywhere. You know, there's hospitals right. in select locations. So it's an easier career field to move around. It's, you know, some jobs aren't everywhere and so it makes it a lot harder to stay together. And the dual military aspect of being in the military can present some challenges and a lot of families are affected by it. But the story that I share is that it does sometimes, you know, work uh, very well, um, provided again, circumstances fit. And in this case, both, you know, medical, both, you know, again, having the ability to kind of navigate through medical healthcare systems that are supporting maybe, again, a lot of different populations. But in this case, William Beaumont was a large facility. They could surely use his expertise and my expertise. And, you know, one of the unique pieces, again, there was that I became commissioned. So we, I was an officer, he was enlisted. And that maybe, again, might have looked a little uh, on from a unique side. And this is way back in the early 90s. So things were a little quite different when you looked at it from that perspective of like, oh, hey, she's an officer and he's enlisted. You know, how did that all happen? Well, you know, we, we were married, so we, it wasn't it, a lot of different circumstances are, are surely different. In our case, we were married and 
having to be able to work together through our career fields sometimes presented challenges, but at the same time, they, they did work out because we had those commonalities. Yeah, that puts a whole another layer of complexity when you have, you know, two enlisted people and one becomes an officer and Exactly. A unique, another unique situation of which we are both appreciative for uh, the Army providing us with that opportunity. And so were you guys able to stay together through your whole career or did at one point did you said you were in for 30 years. So did he stay in till retirement as well or pass? Thank you for asking that. <laughs> Another unique situation. Uh, we ended up moving once more together um, while he stayed in. He did He did get out of the Army at that next duty station, which was Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, one, because we brought in a, a new life into the world. And again, he and I being in the same career or same field, I should say medical, although we're in different career fields, he's clinical and I'm not. But at that point, we were pushing the limits of how we were going to raise our families and uh, our family. And at that time, we had a very young daughter and we really wanted for someone to be home. And so he elected to get out one because in, in his field, he actually could expand outside the military to work as a nurse. And, and I knew from the very beginning, as I stated earlier, my reasons for joining, you know, I really wanted to stay in the, in the military. I wanted to serve and I knew I was going to do 20 at minimum. Didn't know exactly how many more extra years I'd be doing, but I knew that I was going, I was headed in that path. And having received the commission even solidified that even more so knowing for me that I could stay in this field enjoy what I was doing, which I absolutely, uh, you know, completely had a most rewarding experience. And with my husband, it was a little bit slightly different. Uh, he knew he needed to get out just because he was at that nine year, almost 10, he hadn't reached the hump yet. And so we had to make a decision and he was fine with it because he knew he wasn't staying in. He he joined and, uh, and knew that he could stay in, but he could also get out. So there were other circumstances behind it, his classification of his MOS and, and a lot of different things behind it. But all in all, from the timing perspective, it was just the right time for him to get out. He became a stay-at-home dad for close to four years before our daughter actually entered school. So that was an amazing, again, time period for us both to be able to make those choices for our family. He was still able to work. I mean, we did a, you know, sort of handoff like I because my job was a day job. And so as as I was coming back home, he'd be leaving for work. So he was a night shift guy and worked in the emergency room. So that worked out perfectly. But, you know, during the day, he'd watch our daughter, you know, they take naps together or whatever, you know, to just stay home, be able to be at home. And I came home, we handed off the our daughter and then he, you know, said goodbye and then waited before I left for work, he'd be coming back in and, you know, he'd do his, his part of uh, the day's work again. So he worked 24 seven, basically. Yeah. He, I bet he was tired. That's, that's a lot, but that's really cool that he was, I mean, you don't hear a lot of stories. You hear a lot of stories of like where the woman gets out of the military and the husband continues and nowadays it's you know more common but it's still so it's cool that you guys were able to you know figure out what worked for you and find a plan and yeah that that just sounds like (laughs) I've heard of like parents who have to work night shift and then they have to watch their kids during Mm -hmm. the day and they're just like go to sleep take a nap 
He was, so. he was uh, I think, very used to or knew the tricks of the trade to get her to sleep. And <laughs> and he could take a little shut-eye himself, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. And so, okay, so then that made it so you guys didn't have to worry about moving together, maybe. There always is, you know, twists and turns in the, world, in the road. So when you finished that assignment and it was time to move, what happened next? So we were given an opportunity for our first overseas assignment. So we were able to go to Japan and we were there. We loved it so much. We were there for four years. And of course, you know, being a dependent that, at that point, he had no obligation to the military. And it was luckily not, you know, a deployment or location where he could not come and our daughter could not come. So we moved to Japan and we were there for four years and loved it. You know, she remembers a bit about it. She was very young at the time. But at, at that point, you know, an opportunity presented itself. And we were like, we're we're out of here. And we left for Japan and, again, had a, a wonderful experience there and would love to have gone back again. But, you know, the Army presented that opportunity and we took it. So we went to Japan and then, you know, had, a, again, another great time. I bet. I've only heard good things from people who've been stationed in Japan. So it's the best kept secret. I say for the army because the army, it's very small. It's not a large, you know, it's mostly Navy and Air Force. Uh, So we got lucky and uh, we wouldn't have given it up for the world because it was just such a great opportunity. In fact, it was so great that I asked for an extension, which was the extra year because it's normally a three year assignment. And we were able to get the extra, you know, fourth year and ended up finishing out that tour, coming back to the States. Um, and needless to say, my husband has been, you know, going to every assignment with me since he got out of the military. So that makes it easier, right? Aside from my deployment, he certainly was PCS with me or moved with us for each assignment. And because of the nursing field, he was able to find a job easily or did he face any challenges in that arena? In Japan, it was a bit of a challenge just because a lot of the local nationals get the first picks of jobs and, and rightfully so. So it was, And then plus they only had a very small clinic. We were at the army base or army installation there at Camp Zama. So very small clinic, not enough jobs opening. So again, with our child being as young as she was, his biggest job really, which is a full-time job, was taking care of her. And she was still under four. So we she didn't really actually have to go to school or daycare. You know, he was at home and that really helped a lot too, because I, in that particular job, I was traveling a lot for my job and I had basically had coverage of all of the Pacific. And that meant traveling to various different countries because we lived in a country, we lived in Japan and I had a lot of outlying uh, areas to cover for my job. And so my travels, he and our daughter actually would travel in some cases with with me. I had a particular wonderful, again, experience of being able to go back to my home country, which my parents are from, is Thailand. And so being that close to Thailand and having the opportunity to work in Thailand, they would come with me and we'd stay an extra week. You know, I'd take leave and they'd be there with me during work, but they, we'd stay the extra week or so so we could, you know, see my relatives, which at that point was a nice thing to be able to do being so close enough to, you know, the country to travel to and took advantage of it. Every time I was TDY, you know, they'd come with me. And that was the beauty of him not really having a job. But although that challenge wasn't, you know, because of a lot of trying, it was just there wasn't any jobs for him to fill. 
but full-time dad was, you know, of course the priority. And whenever we had an opportunity to travel for work, he would go with me on other occasions. He didn't, you know, he would be at home and, and other times he would have odds and end type jobs. But for the most part, it was, it was a bit of a challenge being overseas as far as a nurse. But when he came back to the States, of course, he was able to pick that back up and kind of get back into swing of things. But a lot of that was just contractual based, kind of on call, not not having to work a nine to five job per se, just because, you know, the challenge of daycare and trying to make sure that someone was home. Yeah, I mean, my husband's in the military. And so he travels a lot. And there's a lot of responsibility that's laid on me. And like, even though my kids are in school, there's early dismissals and random days off and all kinds of stuff that, you know, makes it really challenging for dual working families. I don't know how they do it. I'm in awe of how they do it. And we've also went uh, TDY with him where he gets to go to work and then we get to go play. And so. And you take advantage of those opportunities because not every day can you do it or not every time you can do it. So when you can, and, and if it's possible, then take advantage of it. And we did. Uh, being overseas was even a great opportunity. We had two overseas assignments, one in Japan and one in Germany. So in Germany, it was, you know, full throttle. We were trying to hit every country we could possibly hit. And not all were TDYs, but certainly being as close as we were to many of the European countries we were in Germany, uh, we took advantage of it at, at any opportunity we could. So that was always another rewarding experience of the military is giving us those chances to see the world and our children to be able to see the world. Yeah, and I wanted to go back to, you said you were in Africa for a period of time. And so what was that experience like? And was your family with you? No, they were not. Um, I My experience in Africa, roughly eight plus years uh, while in the military, I'm still actually supporting efforts in Africa right now. Uh, uh, but basically from my military experience, my Africa time was because I was stationed in Germany. I was with uh, the combatant command, uh, the Africa uh, co- combatant command. And the opportunities there again was supporting missions in Africa. So a lot of my, my job was to make sure that the forces were protected. A lot of that also included travel to various different African countries to help support those engagements that I mentioned, where we are working and collaborating with foreign partners in Africa to help them support public health and Force protection, force health protection, particularly malaria was one of the big ones that is a huge threat to our forces. And so, what we I was able to do or be part of, which I was so fortunate to be a part of this program, is helping to build a a task force uh, that supported the prevention of malaria and and help the partners also develop programs that would control malaria or at least prevent malaria. And this is one of the key aspects of my job was to be able to build those types of programs, especially when Ebola hit. I don't know if you remember when Ebola hit in 2014, I was in at AFRICOM at the time. And so a lot of, you know, infectious diseases that pop up, uh, which is, it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. And so we always are part of that process of preparing not only our troops, but working with foreign partners to help them with their programs to prevent and really stop the spread of it uh, as much as possible. And so my time in Africa spent a lot of, again, working with 
uh, for, uh, the African partners to help them build those capacities and capabilities. Most of it dealt with infectious diseases, uh, particularly malaria was like one of our number one uh, health threats, medical threats. Second to that was also helping African partners who support the United Nations missions. And a lot of that required them to advance some of their capabilities, which you can't compare them to Western capabilities or even the U.S. for that matter. But more importantly, it's helping them to be able to utilize their current capabilities and help them enhance those capabilities. So a lot of what I did was help uh, a few select partners to build those capacities for deployment in support of those UN missions or peacekeeping operations. Did a lot of, of building those capacities, everything from public health, like uh, supporting water quality, for example, threats against uh, diseases, uh, particularly from the, the organisms or the bacteria, viruses, things of that nature, and any of the vectors that carried them, along with everything up to critical care of patients and evacuations. All that kind of wrapped up into a, a huge capability for these partners that the U.S. government, of course, supports as a DOD person at the time, I was part of that implementation team and helping them to be able to develop those capabilities, enhance those capabilities over time, train them. A lot of times, you know, I'd be the one to manage different projects that had different specialties within the militaries. And that was one of the rewarding aspects of my job as well as working with every service. I was Army, but I worked with the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the rest of the different services that supported missions in Africa to bring them uh, the, and their expertise to support training of these medical professionals in well over uh, dozens of countries in Africa. So that's my experience. I, I've been working a lot uh, with that uh, to help them build those capacities. And it's a matter of really working together as a global network of medical professionals that can support these missions that are needed, whether it be a peacekeeping mission or a humanitarian mission or a crisis that occurs that's unexpected. These are all things that we can do better together. And I like that you mentioned that you met them where they were. Sometimes when I was deployed, I felt like we were pushing American standards on the Afghan people and there was a big disconnect. So I liked how you talked about like, it's not American standards. We're meeting them where they are. We're focusing on issues that they have, like water quality and malaria. I mean, that was something we were concerned about in Afghanistan as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really interesting to hear like what you guys were doing and how you're working to help the people. And, you know, especially post pandemic, you know, preventative health and the work that you guys do, I think I understand it a lot more than I did before 2020. And so it's really interesting to hear about that type of career in the military and the impact you can make not only in the United States, but around the world. Absolutely. I am. And it just is a full circle to what I had stated earlier about not knowing what I wanted to do. Didn't know what this job title was. Didn't know what field it was called. And when I landed it, even although, you know, without all the information and given the opportunity to get into this field and then start to learn about, oh, wait a minute, there's another aspect of this that I could be involved in and yet still stay within that same, you know, community. It was just a blessing in disguise in terms of, you know, not knowing what you don't know. 
And I think part of that goes into, you know, those that want to serve, don't know what you want to do necessarily. The, I, I feel the military opens those doors for you and be able to, you know, find, find what's going to really be passionate for yourself. And sometimes it doesn't work out. I mean, nothing's ever a, a perfect key, you know, into the keyhole, but it's one of those things that from my experience, I've been very fortunate to to be able to have gotten that key and, and, you know, plugged it into that door and, and be able to turn it and walk right into something that I knew was something I was going to enjoy for the rest of my career. And, and I sure enough did. Yeah. I want to highlight the, tr- the work you're doing today, because it sounds like you're still involved in Africa. And so you transitioned, you said you served 30 years in the military and then you transitioned out. So what are you doing today and how did the military help you get where you are? To be exact, I was in 29 years, six months, 19 days, and almost close to 30. I, I say that because, you know, you know, you know, it's time and you punch out what, you know, getting out the transition was actually a very smooth one for me. I felt liberated, not in a bad way. I felt like it was really one of those things where you could see the other, that there is another side to life. Um, and that life is, again, you can never take back all the the rewards and the experiences and good and bad there, you know, nothing's ever perfect, but that military experience landed me the opportunity to continue serving uh, our nation by supporting certain projects. Uh, I work for a a company that supports the U S government in a number of different projects that are still supporting African partners, particularly in helping them build medical capacities. So I'm appreciative of that opportunity. I still get to support in a different way, in a different uniform, if you will. But it does take that experience that I have and integrate it within from a different perspective, but ultimately resulting in very similar to the same outcomes, which is helping our foreign partners be able to enhance, improve their capabilities, really from a, a medical standpoint, you know, no matter where you are in the world, if you're a service member from the United States or another fo- uh, foreign country supporting the same effort, you want the right medical capabilities there. And, and that's what I feel I can contribute, continue to contribute to. And that's what I'm doing right now. It just so happens that the projects that I am currently working on happen to be in Africa. And my experience from the military has been able to be, be a, a good foundation for me to continue with. And so I'm, I'm very thankful for that. It sounds really cool. And I love hearing how your, you know, that choice to join the army and opened up a career field and it's still something you're doing today so I love I love hearing that thread go through your whole story and I always like to end my interviews with what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service well I have two key points that I would like to share with any women, young women who would like to join the military. And that's first, talk to as many people as possible, both women and men, but particularly, you know, from the women's perspective, uh, certainly you're going to get many different stories, good and bad. But I think to be able to hear that upfront, and just as I shared with me, with you, my story earlier, you know, I didn't know that I could be what I am today. But at the same time, you know, the information was there. And had I been able to speak to maybe an officer or someone who was in my career field, I may have had a better opportunity or another choice to make. And again, though, I'm not regretting that 
those choices were made and those you know decisions were were I guess the opportunity that I was given was given to me in that way because it all worked out. But for those that are coming in, my first advice is to talk to as many people as you can who have either been in the military or are still serving. My second point is if if you are a young female or even you know decide again to join the military and and have uh, those opportunities, find out what you know those opportunities are um, ahead of time to be able to sort of, sort of direct you in those areas that you could focus on because some people do end up changing their career fields. Um, sometimes it's a little bit too late to do it when you're over halfway through your you know your time of service. Uh, but I think the more people you talk to, the the advantages are there. And the second you know piece again is really just connecting uh, with someone, even if it's a, a mentor or somebody who who can help you see some different perspectives, uh, that that would be my other uh, second advice is, is seek someone that could be your guide, um, even if it's uh, for a short term. I think that's really great advice. I wrote a book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which I took all the information plus more from the interviews and lots of internet research and my own experience and put it in a book so that you can have as many of your questions answered that I could think of. And um, I also have a mentorship program for young women who are considering joining the military. So I'll link to that in the show notes so that you can find it easily. It's a great way to connect with other women veterans who have served in the military and can help you in the process of joining. Thank you so much for your time and for your story. I really appreciate getting to talk to you. Thank you so much, Amanda, for your time and appreciate you opening this uh, window and opportunity for, for women veterans. Thank you.